for, intelligent mind to recognize them, it must have required an intelligent mind to establish them, these relations existed before man was created, they have existed ever since the beginning of time, hence, what we call the classification of facts is not the work of his mind in any direct original sense, but the recognition of an intelligent action prior to his own existence, their island perhaps, no part of the world, certainly none familiar to science, where the early geological periods can be studied with so much ease and precision as in the United States, along their northern borders, between Canada and the United States, there runs the low line of hills known as the Laurentian Hills, insignificant in height, nowhere rising more than 1500 or 2000 feet above the level of the sea, these are nevertheless the first mountains that broke the uniform level of the earth's surface and lifted themselves above the waters, their low stature, as compared with that of other more lofty mountain ranges, is in accordance with an invariable rule, by which the relative age of mountains may be estimated, the oldest mountains are the lowest, while the younger and more recent ones tower above their elders, and are usually more torn and dislocated also, this is easily understood, when we remember that all mountains and mountain chains are the result of upheavals, and that the violence of the outbreak must have been in proportion to the strength of the resistance, when the crust of the earth was so thin that the heated masses within easily broke through it, they were not thrown to so great a height, and formed comparatively low elevations, such as the Canadian hills or the mountains of Bretigny and Wales, but in later times, when young, vigorous giants, such as the Alps, the Himalayas, or, later still, the Rocky Mountains, forced their way out from their fiery prison house, the crust of the earth was much thicker, and fearful indeed must have been the convulsions which attended their exit, the Laurentian Hills form, then, a granite range, stretching from eastern Canada to the upper Mississippi, and immediately along its base are gathered the Azoic deposits, the first stratified beds, in which the absence of life need not surprise us, since they were formed beneath a heated ocean, as well might we expect to find the remains of fish or shells or crabs at the bottom of geysers or of boiling springs, as on those early shores bathed by an ocean of which the heat must have been so intense, although, from the condition in which we find it, this first granite range has evidently never been disturbed by any violent convulsion since its first upheaval, yet there has been a gradual rising of that part of the continent, for the Azoic beds do not lie horizontally along the base of the Laurentian hills in the position in which they must originally have been deposited, but are lifted and rest against their slopes. They have been more or less dislocated in this process, and are greatly metamorphized by the intense heat to which they must have been exposed. Indeed, all the oldest stratified rocks have been baked by the prolonged action of heat. It may be asked how the materials for those first stratified deposits were provided, in later times, when an abundant and various soil covered the earth, when every river brought down to the ocean, not only its yearly tribute of mud or clay or lime, but the debris of animals and plants that lived and died in its waters or along its banks, when every lake and pond deposited at its bottom in successive layers the lighter or heavier materials floating in its waters and settling gradually beneath them, the process by which stratified materials are collected and gradually harden into a rock is more easily understood, but when the solid surface of the earth was only just beginning to form, it would seem that the floating matter in the sea can hardly have been in sufficient quantity to form any extensive deposits. No doubt there was some abrasion even of that first crust, but the more abundant source of the earliest stratification is to be found in the submarine volcanoes that poured their liquid streams into the first ocean. 
that what rate these materials would be distributed and precipitated in regular strata it is impossible to determine, but that volcanic materials were so deposited in layers is evident from the relative position of the earliest rocks. I have already spoken of the innumerable chimneys perforating the azoic beds, narrow outlets of plutonic rock, protruding through the earliest strata. Not only are such funnels filled with the crystalline mass of granite that flowed through them in a liquid state, but it has often poured over their sides, mingling with the stratified beds around. In the present state of our knowledge, we can explain such appearances only by supposing that the heated materials within the Earth's crust poured out frequently, meeting little resistance, that they then scattered and were precipitated in the ocean around, settling in successive strata at its bottom that through such strata the heated masses within continued to pour again and again, forming for themselves the chimney-like outlets above mentioned. Such, then, was the earliest American land, a long, narrow island, almost continental in its proportions, since it stretched from the eastern borders of Canada nearly to the point where now the base of the Rocky Mountains meets the plain of the Mississippi Valley. We may still walk along its ridge and know that we tread upon the ancient granite that first divided the waters into a northern and southern ocean, and if our imaginations will carry us so far, we may look down toward its base and fancy how the sea washed against the surliest shore of a lifeless world. This is no romance, but the bald, simple truth, for the fact that this granite band was lifted out of the waters so early in the history of the world, and has not since been submerged, has, of course, prevented any subsequent deposits from forming above it, and this is true of all the northern part of the United States. It has been lifted gradually, the beds deposited in one period being subsequently raised, and forming a shore along which those of the succeeding one collected, so that we have their whole sequence before us. In regions where all the geological deposits Silurian, Devonian, Carboniferous, Permian, Triassic, etc. are piled one upon another, and we can get a glimpse of their internal relations only where some rent has laid them open, or where their ragged edges, worn away by the abrading action of external influences, exposed to view their successive layers. It must, of course, be more difficult to follow their connection. For this reason the American continent offers facilities to the geologist denied to him in the so-called Old World, where the earlier deposits are comparatively hidden, and the broken character of the land, intersected by mountains in every direction, renders his investigation still more difficult. Of course, when I speak of the geological deposits as so completely unveiled to us here, I do not forget the sheet of drift which covers the continent from north to south, and which we shall discuss hereafter, when I reach that part of my subject, but the drift is only a superficial and recent addition to the soil, resting loosely above the other geological deposits, and arising, as we shall see from very different causes. In this article I had intended to limit myself to a general sketch of the formation of the Laurentian Hills with the Azoic stratified beds resting against them. In the Silurian epoch following the Azoic we had the first beach on which any life stirred, it extended along the base of the Azoic beds, widening by its extensive deposits the narrow strip of land already upheft. I propose, to invite my readers to a stroll with me along that beach. With what interest do we look upon any relic of early human history? The monument that tells of a civilization whose hieroglyphic records we cannot even decipher. The slightest trace of a nation that vanished and left no sign of its life except the rough tools and utensils buried in the old site of its towns or villages, arouses our imagination and excites our curiosity. Men gaze with awe at the inscription on an ancient Egyptian or Assyrian stone, 
They hold with reverential touch the yellow parchment roll whose dim, defaced characters record the meager learning of a buried nationality, and the announcement, that for centuries the tropical forests of Central America had hidden within their tangled growth the ruined homes and temples of a past race, stirs the civilized world with a strange, deep wonder. To me it seems, that to look on the first land that was ever lifted above the waste of waters, to follow the shore where the earliest animals and plants were created when the thought of God first expressed itself in organic forms, to hold in one's hand a bit of stone from an old sea beach, hardened into a rock thousands of centuries ago, and studded with the beings that once crept upon its surface or were stranded there by some retreating wave, is even of deeper interest to men than the relies of their own race, for these things tell more directly of the thoughts and creative acts of God, standing in the neighborhood of Whitehall near Lake George, one may look along such a seashore, and see it stretching westward and sloping gently southward as far as the eye can reach, it must have had a very gradual slope, and the waters must have been very shallow, for at that time no great mountains had been uplifted, and deep oceans are always the concomitants of lofty heights, we do not, however, judge of this by inference nearly, we have an evidence of the shallowness of the sea in those days in the character of the shells found in the Silurian deposits, which shows that they belonged in shoal waters. Indeed, the fossil remains of all times tell us almost as much of the physical condition of the world at different epochs as they do of its animal and vegetable population. When Robinson Crusoe first caught sight of the footprint on the sand, he saw in it more than the mere footprint, for it spoke to him of the presence of men on his desert island. We walk on the old geological shores, like Crusoe along his beach, and the footprints we find there tell us, too more than we actually see in them. The crust of our earth is a great cemetery, where the rocks are two stones on which the buried dead have written their own epitaphs. They tell us not only who they were and when and where they lived, but much also of the circumstances under which they lived. We ascertain the prevalence of certain physical conditions at special epochs by the presence of animals and plants whose existence and maintenance required such a state of things, more than by any positive knowledge respecting it where we find the remains of quadrupeds corresponding to our ruminating animals. We infer not only land, but grassy meadows also, and an extensive vegetation, where we find none but marine animals. We know the ocean must have covered the earth, the remains of large reptiles, representing, though in gigantic size, the half-aquatic, half-terrestrial reptiles of our own period, indicate to us the existence of spreading marshes still soaked by the retreating waters while the traces of such animals as live now in sand and shoal waters, or in mud, speak to us of shelving sandy beaches and of mud flats. The eye of the trilobite tells us that the sun shone on the old beach where he lived, for there is nothing in nature without a purpose, and when so complicated an organ was made to receive the light, there must have been light to enter it. The immense vegetable deposits in the Carboniferous period announce the introduction of an extensive terrestrial vegetation, and the impressions left by the wood and leaves of the trees show that these first forests must have grown in a damp soil and a moist atmosphere. In short, all the remains of animals and plants hidden in the rocks have something to tell of the climatic conditions and the general circumstances under which they lived, and the study of fossils is to the naturalist a thermometer by which he reads the variations of temperature in past times a plummet by which he sounds the depths of the ancient oceans, a register, in fact, of all the important physical changes the earth has undergone, but although the animals of the early geological deposits indicate shallow seas by their similarity to our shoal water animals, it must not be supposed that they are by any means the same, 
on the contrary, the old shells, crustacea, corals, etc. represent types which had existed in all times with the same essential structural elements, but under different specific forms in the several geological periods, and here it may not be amiss to say something of what are called by naturalists representative types. The statement that different sets of animals and plants have characterized the successive epochs is often understood as indicating a difference of another kind than that which distinguishes animals now living in different parts of the world. This is a mistake. There are so-called representative types all over the globe, united to each other by structural relations and separated by specific differences of the same kind as those that unite and separate animals of different geological periods. Take, for instance, but flats or sandy shores in the same latitudes of Europe and America, we find living on each, animals of the same structural character and of the same general appearance, but with certain specific differences, as of color, size, external appendages, etc. They represent each other on the two continents. The American wolves, foxes, bears, rabbits, are not the same as the European, but those of one continent are as true to their respective types as those of the other. Under a somewhat different aspect they represent the same groups of animals, in certain latitudes, or under conditions of nearer proximity. These differences may be less marked. It is well known that there is a great monotony of type, not only among animals and plants, but in the human races also, throughout the Arctic regions, and some animals characteristic of the high north reappear under such identical forms in the neighborhood of the snow fields in lofty mountains, that to trace the difference between the ptarmigans, rabbits, and other gnawing animals of the Alps, for instance, and those of the Arctics, is among the most difficult problems of modern science, and so it is also with the animated world of past ages, in similar deposits of sand, mud, or lime, in adjoining regions of the same geological age, identical remains of animals and plants may be found, while at greater distances, but under similar circumstances, representative species may occur, in very remote regions, However, whether the circumstances be similar or dissimilar, the general aspect of the organic world differs greatly, remoteness in space being thus in some measure an indication of the degree of affinity between different faunae, in deposits of different geological periods immediately following each other, we sometimes find remains of animals and plants so closely allied to those of earlier or later periods that at first sight the specific differences are hardly discernible, the difficulty of solving these questions and of appreciating correctly the differences and similarities between such closely allied organisms, explains the antagonistic views of many naturalists respecting the range of existence of animals, during longer or shorter geological periods, and the superficial way in which discussions concerning the transition of species are carried on, is mainly owing to an ignorance of the conditions above alluded to. My own personal observation and experience in these matters have led me to the conviction that every geological period has had its own representatives, and that no single species has been repeated in successive ages. The laws regulating the geographical distribution of animals, and their combination into distinct zoological provinces called faunae, with definite limits, are very imperfectly understood as yet but so closely are all things linked together from the beginning that I am convinced we shall never find the clue to their meaning till we carry on our investigations in the past and the present simultaneously. The same principle according to which animal and vegetable life is distributed over the surface of the earth now, prevailed in the earliest geological periods. The geological deposits of all times have had their characteristic faunae under various zones, 
their zoological provinces presenting special combinations of animal and vegetable life over certain regions, and their representative types reproducing in different countries, but under similar latitudes, the same groups with specific differences. Of course, the nearer we approach the beginning of organic life, the less marked do we find the differences to be, and for a very obvious reason, the inequalities of the Earth's surface, her mountain barriers protecting whole continents from the Arctic winds, her open plains exposing others to the full force of the polar blasts, her snug valleys and her lofty heights, her tablelands and rolling prairies, her river systems and her dry deserts, her cold ocean currents pouring down from the high north on some of her shores, while warm ones from tropical seas carry their softer influence to others. In short, all the contrasts in the external configuration of the globe, with the physical conditions attendant upon them, are naturally accompanied by a corresponding variety in animal and vegetable life. But in the Silurian age, when there were no elevations higher than the Canadian hills, when water covered the face of the earth, with the exception of a few isolated portions lifted above the almost universal ocean, how monotonous must have been the conditions of life, and what should we expect to find on those first shores, if we are walking on a sea beach today? We do not look for animals that haunt the forests or roam over the open plains, or for those that live in sheltered valleys or in inland regions or on mountain heights. We look for shells, for mussels and barnacles, for crabs, for shrimps, for marine worms, for starfishes and sea urchins, and we may find here and there a fish stranded on the sand or tangled in the seaweed. The geologist cannot find his way back in the record of the great stone book, to the far-off day when life began. The various changes that come over rocks from the action of heat, of water, and of pressure, had slowly modified these ancient beds, so that they no longer preserve the frames of the animals that were buried in them. These old rocks, which are so changed that we cannot any longer make sure that any animals lived in them, are called the Archean, which is Greek for ancient. They were probably mud and sand and limestone when first made, but they have been changed to micaceous, gneiss, granite, marble and other crystalline rocks. When any rock becomes crystalline, the fossils dissolve and disappear, as coins lose their stamp and form when they are melted in the jeweler's gold pot. These ancient rocks that lie deepest in the earth are very thick, and must have taken a great time in building. Great continents must have been worn down by rain and waves in order to supply the waste out of which they were made. It is tolerably certain that they took as much time during their making as has been required for all the other times since they were formed. During the vast ages of the Sarkian the life of our earth began to be. We first find many certain evidences of life in the rocks which lie on top of the Archean rock, and are known as the Cambrian and Silurian periods. There we have creatures akin to our corals and crabs and worms, and others that are the distant kindred of the cuttlefishes and of our land shells. There were no backboned animals, that is to say, no land mammals, reptiles, or fishes at this stage of the earth's history. It is not likely that there was any land life except of plants and those forms like the lowest ferns, and probably mosses, nor is it likely that there were any large continents as at the present time, but rather a host of islands lying where the great lands now are, the budding tops of the continents just appearing above the sea. Although the life of this time was far simpler than at the present day, it had about as great variety as we would find on our present sea floors. There were as many different species living at the same time on a given surface. The Cambrian and Silurian time the time before the coming of the fishes must have endured for many million years without any great change in the world. 
ghosts of species lived and died, half a dozen times or more the life of the earth was greatly changed, new species came much like those that had gone before, and only a little gain here and there was perceptible at any time, still, at the end of the Silurian, the life of the world had climbed some steps higher in structure and in intelligence, the next set of periods is known as the Devonian, it is marked by the rapid extension of the fishes, for, although the fishes began in the uppermost Silurian, they first became abundant in this time, these, the first strong jaw tyrants of the sea, came all at once, like a rush of the old Norman pirates into the peaceful seas of Great Britain, they made a lively time among the sluggish beings of that olden sea, creatures that were able to meet feebler enemies were swept away or compelled to undergo great changes, and all the life of the ocean seems to have a spur given to it by these quicker formed and quicker willed animals. In the Stavonian section of our rocks we have proofs that the lands were extensively covered with forests of low fern trees, and we find the first trace of air-breathing animals in certain insects akin to our dragonflies. In the stage of the Earth's history the fishes grew constantly more plentiful, and the seas had a great abundance of corals and crinoids, except for the fishes. There were no very great changes in the character of the life from that which existed in the earlier time of the Cambrian and Silurian. The animals are constantly changing, but the general nature of the life remains the same as in the earlier time. In the Carboniferous or Coal-Bearing Age, we have the second great change in the character of the life on the Earth. Of the earlier times, we have preserved only the rocks formed in the seas, but rarely do we find any trace of the land life or even of the life that lived along the shores. In this Carboniferous time, however, we had very extensive sheets of rocks which were formed in swamps in the way shown in the earlier part of this book. They constitute our coal beds, which, though much worn away by rain and sea, still cover a large part of the land surface. These beds of coal grew in the air, and, although the swamps where they were formed had very little animal life in them, we find some fossils which tell us that the life of the land was making great progress. There are new insects including beetles, cockroaches, spiders, and scorpions, and, what is far more important, there are some air-breathing, backboned animals, akin to the salamanders and water dogs of the present day, these were nearly as large as alligators, and of much the same shape, but they were probably born from the egg in the shape of tadpoles and lived for a time in the water as our young frogs, toads, and salamanders do. This is the first step upwards from the fishes to a land vertebrates, and we may well be interested in it, for it makes one most important advance in creatures through whose lives our own existence became possible. Still, these ancient woods of the coal period must have had little of the life we now associate with the forests, there were still no birds, no serpents, no true lizards, no suck-giving animals, no flowers, and no fruits. These coal period forests were somber wastes of shade with no sound save those of the wind, the thunder, and the volcano, or of the running streams and the waves on the shores, in the seas of the Carboniferous time, we notice that the ancient life of the earth is passing away, many creatures, such as the trilobites, die out, and many other forms such as the crinoids or sea lilies become fewer in kind and of less importance, these marks of decay in the marine life continue into the beds just after the Carboniferous, known as the Permian which are really the last stages of the coal-bearing period, when with the changing time we pass to the beds known as the Triassic, which were made just after the close of the Carboniferous time. We find the earth undergoing swift changes in its life. The moist climate and lowlands that caused the swamps to grow so rapidly have ceased to be, and in their place we appear to have warm, 
dry air, and higher lands. On these lands of the Triassic time the air-breathing life made very rapid advances. The plants are seen to undergo considerable changes. The ferns no longer make up all the forests, but trees more like the pines began to abound, and insects became more plentiful and more varied. Hitherto the only land-backboned animal was akin to our salamanders. Now we have true lizards in abundance, many of them of large size. Some of them were probably plant-eaters, but most were flesh-eaters. Some seem to have been tenants of the early swamps, and some dwelt in the forests. The creatures related to the salamanders have increased in the variety of their forms to a wonderful extent. We know them best by the tracks which they have left on the mudstones formed on the borders of lakes or the edge of the sea. In some places these footprints are found in amazing numbers and perfection. The best place for them is in the Connecticut Valley, near Turner's Falls, Mass. At this point the red sandstone and shale beds, which are composed of thin layers having a total thickness of several hundred feet, are often stamped over by these footprints like the mud of a barnyard. From the little we can determine from these footprints, the creatures seem to have been somewhat related to our frogs, but they generally had tails, and, though provided with four legs, were in the habit of walking on the hind ones alone like the kangaroo. A few of these tracks are shown in the figure on this page. These strange creatures were of many different species. Some of them must have been six or seven feet high, for their steps are as much as three feet apart, and seem to imply a creature weighing several hundred pounds. Others were not bigger than robins. Strangely enough, we have never found their bones nor the creatures on which they fed, and but for the formation of a little patch of rocks here and there we should not have had even these footprints to prove to us that such creatures had lived in the Connecticut Valley in this far-off time but these wonderful forms are less interesting than two or three little fossil jaw bones that prove to us that in this Triassic time the earth now bore another animal more akin to ourselves, in the shape of a little creature that gave sight to its young. Once more life takes a long upward step in this little opossum-like animal, perhaps the first creature whose young was born alive. These little creatures called microlists or dromatherium, of which only one or two different but related species have been found in England and in North Carolina appear to have been insect eaters of about the size and shape of the Australian creature shown in figure 7. So far we know it in but few specimens, altogether only an ounce or two of bones, but they are very precious monuments of the past. In this Triassic time the climate appears to have been rather dry, for in it we had many extensive deposits of salt formed by the evaporation of closed lakes, of seas, such as are now forming on the bottom of the Dead Sea, and the Great Salt Lake of Utah and a hundred or more other similar basins of the present day. In the sea animals of this time we find many changes. Already some of the giant lizard-like animals, which first took shape on the land, are becoming swimming animals. They changed their feet to paddles, which, with the help of a flattened tail, force them through the water. The fishes on which these great swimming lizards preyed are more like the fishes of our present day than they were before. The trilobites are gone, and of the crinoids only a remnant is left. Most of the corals of the earlier days have disappeared, but the mollusks have not changed more than they did at several different times in the earliest stages of the Earth's history. After the Trias comes a long succession of ages in which the life of the world is steadily advancing to higher and higher planes, but for a long time there is no such startling change as that which came in the passage from the coal series of rocks to the Trias. This long set of periods is known to geologists as the Age of Rectals. It is well named for the kindred of the lizards then had the control of the land. There were then none of our large fish to dispute their control, 
so they shaped themselves to suit all the occupations that could give them a chance for a living. Some remain beasts of prey like our alligators, but grew to a larger size, some took to eating the plants, and came to a walk on their four legs as our ordinary beasts do, no longer dragging themselves on their bellies as do the lizard and alligator, their lower kindred, others became flying creatures like our bats, only vastly larger, often with a spread of wing of fifteen or twenty feet, yet others, even as strangely shaped, dwelt with the sharks in the sea. In this time of the Earth's history we had the first bird-like forms, they were feathered creatures, with bills carrying true teeth, and with strong wings, but they were reptiles in many features, having long, blunt tails such as none of our existing birds have, they show us that the birds are the descendants of reptiles, coming off from them as a branch does from the parent tree, the tortoises began in this series of rocks, at first they are marine or swimming forms, the box turtles coming later, here to begin many of the higher insects, creatures like moths and bees appear, and the forests are enlivened with all the important kinds of insects, though the species were very different from those now living, in the age of reptiles the plants had made a considerable advance, palms are plenty, forms akin to our pines and firs abound, and the old flowerless group of ferns begins to shrink in size, and no longer spreads its feathery foliage over all the land as before, still there were none of our common broad-leaved trees, the world had not yet known the oaks, birches, maples, or any of our hardwood trees that lose their leaves in autumn, nor were the flowering plants, those with gay blossoms, yet on the earth, the woods and fields were doubtless fresh and green, but they wanted the gee.